Our dear Heavenly Father, we pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Now I'll read what we just sang, uh, Psalm 137. It's our text this morning, beginning at verse 1. We'll read the whole psalm. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept. When we remembered Zion, on the willows there we hung up our lyres. For there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you. I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall be he who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this is not the psalm that one picks usually for Invite a Neighbor Sunday. Uh, it, it's, it, it, you sort of, it's really good until you get to verse 6, and then you sort of uh, think, uh, or sorry, verse 9, and you sort of think, uh, where does this fit in the canon of Scripture? Uh, what kind of prayer is that? And why didn't Horton have us sing that verse <laughs> when we sang the rest of the verses of this psalm? We're going to look at that uh, this, this morning. In 587 B.C., uh, Judah was sacked and sent into exile in, in about 597. And now some of the remnant uh, has returned. They're remembering what it was like to, to be in Babylon, to sit along the banks. That's usually where they would gather for worship, uh, out from under the watchful eye of their oppressor. Uh, they would sit on the banks, and they would have their worship services there. Uh, and, and there they hung up their harps. They hung up their lyres, uh, ready to... to uh, to sing the praises of God if they ever felt like they could utter those praises. Remember is a recurring theme here. They're called to remember. The psalmist is telling himself to remember. And then the last part of the psalm, uh, in that part, God is told to remember. And so there's a lot of remembering going on here, remembering the covenant that God has made with his people Israel. And that's really what this is about. This is not about patriotism. This is not about Israel uh, as, a, as a nation state in the world. This is about Zion. And, and Zion is all about the covenant. To be in a covenantal relationship with God is the whole point of God delivering his people in the Exodus, the whole point of him bringing into the fair land, 
that he had promised to give them. But he had also promised, just as I have driven out the nations from before you for their idolatry, I will drive you out. This is not a, this is not a, um, a kind of a mere patriotism we're talking about. It's loyalty to the covenant. And if you aren't loyal to the covenant, I'll treat you the way that I did to the other nations. What a, what a privilege it is to be in covenant with the Lord, but also what a, what a solemn responsibility. Indeed, even a danger. It's a lament before the cosmic court in which Yahweh and his anointed, Zion, are set in opposition to Satan and his city, Babylon. And so first of all, the psalmist remembers the captivity. And this is not just the psalmist by himself. Uh, The third person plural is used here several times right at the outset. Uh, We remember uh, may, our, may, may our right hand no longer have its use. It's a, all uh, a, a shared memory uh, of that aching sense of being outside of the Lord's land, exiled just as he promised he would, exiled from the presence of God and the temple utterly destroyed. What did the temple mean? The temple... The temple was the crown of God's presence in mercy. The temple was where sins are forgiven, that they're covered. Uh, It was the only access that the people of God had because they are sinful people. The only access they had to the Lord was that standing temple. And now that it lay in rubble, they're weeping, even though they're no longer apparently exiles. They have returned, but they're still in exile as long as the temple lies destroyed. Zion's holiness and sacred inviolability, that's what's key here. Not Israel surviving as a nation state, not its geopolitical victory, uh, not God just taking the side of one nation over other nations, but the people he took into his safekeeping. That's Zion. That is the true Zion. The Zion of God is the people of God. And the destruction of the temple is even more fundamental than the exile of the people because even in the Lord's land, even being brought back to the land, do they have access to the Lord? Do they have access through the forgiveness of sins? Or are they lo ami? Have they just returned to familiar surroundings only to be called No people. It was Yahweh who exiled them. Uh, As we we read about uh, the story in Exodus chapter 4, chapters 4 through 11, God exiles his people. The, The Holy Spirit leaves the temple through the eastern gate, and a sentry is placed at the eastern gate, just as happened when Adam and Eve sinned. And uh, uh, cherubim was placed at the eastern gate of the, of the sanctuary of God there. And, and here the captors' taunts reverberate in their memories. They remember sitting around and, and having the, their, their oppressors kind of sit back, probably with their wine and cheese, and say, Sing us 
one of those Zion songs. You know, it's, it, what a, what a uh, on top of the shame uh, of being an oppressed people, they had to endure the ignominy of being taunted to sing one of those songs of Zion. They're sort of like, uh, sing us one of those slave songs. Or think about you know, if, 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 you were in, uh, if you were in a, uh, a nation that was oppressing the people of God, imagine what it would be like to, to be in a cell, a prison cell with other Christians, and the guards come by periodically and say, sing one of those Jesus songs. How could you sing Amazing Grace? How could you sing Great is Thy Faithfulness? What song would you sing? It would be difficult in those, those circumstances, just adding, adding insult to injury. So now the very songs of Zion are transformed from sacred liturgy to secular parody. That's what's worse. It's not just the shame. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's really the shame that is brought upon the worship of God. It's being mocked. Without the fact of the temple, all bets are off. Israel can only recall this shame and carry this shame with her even into the continuing exile of living in the Holy Land. But it's not a Holy Land anymore, right? Because the temple's destroyed, the Holy Spirit has exited uh, the sanctuary, it is a common land right now. And so there's a prayer, there's a longing for once again this land to be the place where God dwells with his people. So remembering the captivity, but then secondly, remembering the covenant in verses 5 and 6. If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Now, before we get to uh, the, the curse that is pronounced at the very end, that controversial verse uh, that we'll come to in just a moment, it, it's important to point out the first condemnation, the first judgment or imprecation, as it's called, is pronounced by the psalmist on himself. Uh, May that that arm that is raised in worship not perform any other function. May it just go limp. May it no longer be usable for, for any purpose at all if it is not lifted in praise to you. May my tongue that sings your praises cleave to the roof of my mouth. May I never be able to have a conversation again with anyone if I forget Jerusalem. So the psalmist calls for judgment on himself should he forget the glory of Zion and the violence of Babylon. And once again, it's the covenant that stands above everything else, not just Babylon, but Israel and Judah. The covenant stands even above the nation of God's inheritance. 
Zion is not a symbol of Israel's national consciousness, uh, a talisman of nationalism, although that's what it had become, and that's why they were sent into exile. They'd taken it all for granted. Oh, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Mount Zion, we're standing on Mount Zion. Here it is. It's not just a replica. It's not just a copy. It's not just a type or a shadow pointing to the reality. It is the reality. They had lost a sense of the already and the not yet. They had lost a sense that God was not to be taken for granted, that God's covenant mercies were conditional. Uh, God taking Israel as a nation into his own safekeeping was dependent on Israel's fidelity to God as the great king. As early as Amos, two centuries prior to the exile, the covenant had been broken, although the people vainly trusted in the temple for safety. Here's what we read there. Therefore, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion, who sing stupid songs to the sound of the harp, The very thing that's praised in psalm after psalm. Sing praises to the, to the sound of the harp, the lyre. Here are stupid songs. Take away the noise of your songs. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion. You oppress your neighbor and you oppress my ears, God says, with the noise of your songs. The songs of the temple will become wailings on that day. Amos prophesies in Amos 8.3, I will deliver up the whole city and everything that is in it. And he did. He, he fulfilled that threat. Israel failed to turn, failed to heed God's warnings. But the ruthlessness with which Babylon executed God's decree unwittingly was not forgotten by God or by God's people. Uh, it's not just simply that they, they, they raised the city to the foundations, which is what God was going to use Babylon to do, but that they taunted, that they, they went beyond all measure in their violence and in their cruelty. But again, uh, while Amos here focuses on the sins of Israel and Judah in his call to repentance, in this psalm, he focuses on the sins of Israel's neighbors. He's, he focuses particularly on the sins of Babylon and Edom. Your brother Edom. Uh, Edom was to the south uh, of Israel, what is now Jordan, uh, and the, the Edomites were, like the Israelites, descended from Abraham uh, and Isaac. They were, they were the descendants of Esau, whereas the Israelites were the descendants of Jacob. Not much has changed in that part of the world, uh, where, where the children of Esau and the children of Jacob are constantly uh, at each other's throats, it seems. And... God turns to Babylon and especially to Edom. Edom, how could you do this? You're Israel's brother and you, you sat there and mocked and scoffed and you held the door open for the Babylonians. 
And so God remembers. God remembers how ruthlessly his people were treated. Babylon, the capital of the city of man, the kingdom of power is built on the plains, flat land, and yet the people come together to build a high tower reaching to the heavens. Whereas Zion is built on God's mountain, a mountain on which God descends to make that place his footstool, the place of his dwelling with his people. In Psalm 79, we're told, O God, the nations have come into your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. They have laid Jerusalem in ruins. We have become a taunt to our neighbors. How long, O Lord? Will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? Pour out your anger on the nations that do not know you and on the kingdoms that do not call upon your name. For they have devoured Jacob and laid waste his habitation. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? How long, O Lord, when will you avenge yourself? And when will the martyr's blood be avenged? We'll be talking about that in Sunday school we're going through the book of Revelation. Much of the book of Revelation is, is reflecting on this experience of Israel, even in captivity, though living in the land of Israel. How long, O Lord, when will you bring about justice for your elect? And then remember in judgment, and particularly Edom, as I mentioned, Edom is particularly singled out for judgment. Because Edom should have been a good brother, but was not. In Obadiah 10, we read, Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth, and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother and the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people or loot his wealth in the day of their calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. For the day of the Lord is upon all the nations. As you have done... It shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. But in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape, and it shall be made holy. There will always be a remnant, but that mountain has been completely defiled. There's a, a greater Zion. Uh, that the prophets are looking forward to. But this, uh, how can we, even, even in the land of Israel, even though we've come back to our villages that had once been destroyed, we built up our houses again, the temple lies in ruin. How can, we, how can we sing the songs of Zion here any more than we were able with gusto to sing them on the banks of the Euphrates? 
And then there's that last verse. That last verse, blessed be he who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rocks. First of all, it's blessed be he. It's <laughs> uh, not taking volunteers. Uh, blessed be he. There's someone else here. Blessed be he. We'll find out who that is in just a moment. But blessed is he who repays you. And this is, this is the language that we've already seen in some of the prophets, the language of lex talionis, the law of giving back what they gave. Uh, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Setting things right. Making sure that what the enemy has done to the Lord's people, the Lord will do now to the enemy. What's our policy with imprecations like this? Uh, well, one is that we deny it. We, we simply say this is, one of the, this is one of the terror passages in the Bible that we just kind of uh, take Thomas Jefferson's scissor, scissors to. We just cut it out of our Bibles and say, well, well, it's a sad slip of the tongue in a moment of crisis. Who, who can blame them? They, they, they were ha- having a, a, a bad day. The other is allegorizing it. And I, I love C.S. Lewis, but I, I, I don't agree with his take on this. He says, I know things in the inner life which are like babies. The infantile beginnings of small indulgences, small resentments which may become settled hatred. Knock the little sin's brains out. Can you hear that with an English accent? And blessed he who can, for it's far easier said than done. Would that it were that easy (laughs) to deal with verse 9 by allegorizing it. I don't think that's what it means. What, what does it mean? I think it, it, we are to affirm it within its proper redemptive historical horizon. There is a time and a place for songs like this. There is a time and a place for how long, O Lord? When will you avenge the, the, the blood of the martyrs? When will you set everything right? And you know what's interesting is it's usually... The oppressed who cry out for justice, not the oppressors. Um, it's the poor who wonder how long. When will God set things right? A deep sense of justice is affirmed in this passage. It's not a sense of just you know, uh, wanton cruelty. It, it's a cry for justice. It's a, for, a cry for God to remember his people in that day. But today is the day of salvation. This is the day of grace. So how do you sing this song in a day of salvation? That's why we, we didn't. I know there, there are different interpretations of how you, how you treat the imprecatory psalms. You know, we can sing it because we're, it, it's not in our hands, but we are looking forward to the day when Final judgment will come. Uh, but I, I, th- I think we can't sing a song, that particular verse today because we live in a different time in redemptive history. Remember when James and John, sons of thunder, were very well versed in verse 9? Uh, 
Go to the Samaritans, and, and, and the Samaritans reject the teaching of Jesus and the disciples, and uh, they say to Jesus, well, uh, um, can call fire down. How about, I could do that right now. You can, you can go get a sandwich. We can, James and I, uh, 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 we, can, we can handle this. We'll just call fire down and uh, destroy them. And, and all we read is, and Jesus rebuked them sharply, and they went to another village. I mean, that's a place where I would like a little bit more information. I'd like to know what he said. Uh, that would preach. You know, it would be nice to know what he, but it is enough to know. He rebuked them sharply, and they went to another village. In his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Regime change, we're not doing that now. This is a different era in the history of redemption. We're not praying those imprecatory prayers right now. We're not calling fire down from heaven, but, but one day, one day it will seem right to do that. But not now. Who are we, the enemies of God, being brought into Zion, being made part of of the people of God ourselves, who are we? And blessed is he who does this when he comes in glory at the end of the age. He came in salvation and meekness, grace. Second time he's coming in judgment and power. And if we don't like Psalm 137, if we wince at Psalm 137, we're going to have trouble with the book of Revelation. If we have trouble with the God of the Old Testament then we're going to have troubles with Jesus who talked about final judgment more than anyone else in the Bible. It's coming. That day is coming, a a day of final reckoning. And in Revelation 19, there's rejoicing at that day. Rejoicing as Babylon the great is fallen. The earthly Zion already in the prophets is being transcended by the heavenly Zion, a vision of the new heavens and the new earth, a Zion that is no longer a copy but is the real thing. It's not an anticipation of the heavenly city. It's exactly the heavenly city coming down from heaven, and it's the people of God. People drawn from every tribe and kindred and tongue and people and nation. Not a conditional covenant. Not a covenant where you get back what you dished out. But where Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, received the lashes that we deserved. It's an unconditional covenant, unconditional promises. Therefore, a greater covenant, everlasting city, and we will never be cast out of it. For these true children of Zion, today from Babylon and Edom, as well as Israel, exile is over. Restoration of Israel and the rebuilding of the true temple, made without hands, is well underway. Because Jesus will not give up the one who said, zeal for your house consumes me. 
But there remains a final tribunal, a verdict between the plaintiff, Yahweh, and the accused, the kings of the earth, who set their heart against the Lord and against his anointed. And after that trial, after that trial, there will be no remnant. No captives will be spared. No trace of man's proud city and its towers left behind. And that's good news. That's good news because it means no more violence, no more pain, no more suffering, no more unrighteousness. And Zion will descend fully and forever in peace and righteousness upon its ashes. Let's pray. Great Heavenly Father, we do long for that day, but not yet. Not until you have fulfilled your purposes in bringing all of the elect from every tribe and kindred and tongue and people and nation by your grace into your Zion. Oh, dear Heavenly Father, please hasten that progress so that that day may come soon when our Savior will stand upon the earth and make all things new. For we pray in his name. Amen.